God gives us the great privilege of working together to see how we can be involved in his worldwide work. What some would call to preach, Joel, somebody just fixed it, I think, Um, to preach and to heal, to make disciples and to be involved in his disciple-making ministry and to be involved in improving the health and health care of people around the world. We have many pieces, many tools in our arsenal of how to engage with people. And when we consider medical work, immunizations, vaccines, are one of the main tools that we have that can make a huge difference in what goes on around the world. It is really fun to see all of you this morning. Are you having a good week so far? That's good. Nancy brought a dog. That's really cute. Thank you very much. Uh, Are you hearing me just through that? Can you hear me if I wander away from that microphone? Yes, thank you very much. Uh, how, many of you, how many of you are physicians already working overseas? How many of you are physicians considering work overseas? How many of you are nurses in this country? Nurses overseas? How many of you are students? How many of you are other? Hi, hi. How many of you are, I don't know? How many of you are epidemiologists getting P? Hello, Hiller. All right. Great to have all of you here. Great to be involved with all of you today. I'm Phil. I'm currently working at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I've spent time in different parts of this country, six years in the middle of Africa, in Congo. Um, so I have some perspective from that. And we're going to talk about vaccines. As I came into the room, I was greeted by someone who said, Yeah, my so-and-so doesn't believe in vaccines for her and for her children. How many of you are here because you want to learn how to better vaccinate? How many of you are here to disagree with whatever I'm about to say as a pediatrician talking about vaccines? All right, we should be able to have a good time. We should be able to be interactive. I do have some disclosures. The financial ones don't matter much. Um, But I've written some chapters and been involved with a book, and those chapters and books relate a little bit to vaccines, and I get paid for some commentaries I write, um, and the total comes into a free copy of each of the books, and about $100 over the last decade for the book I've been involved with. So I don't think I'm too biased by finances, but I'll admit that my perspectives have been biased by experience. Before we had good vaccines for hepatitis A and typhoid, I was sick with hepatitis A for nine months, with typhoid for two weeks. I believe in vaccines, and I'm glad we have better vaccines available now. As a pediatrician working in this country and working overseas, I've had the privilege of caring for lots of children. Sadly, many of those children were sick and died because of vaccine-preventable diseases, or what some might call they died because of vaccine deficiency. I've had children sick and dying with whooping cough and tetanus and measles and rubella, German measles. I've had children dying from meningitis due to meningococcus and pneumococcus and homophilus influenza. These are all vaccine-preventable diseases, so I'll admit that I am perhaps a bit biased by seeing what happens when children are not immunized. I'll admit I had a patient once in this country after I had returned from Africa And she said, no, I don't want my children vaccinated. And I said, well, tell me about that. And she said, you know, all those kids in Africa, they don't have vaccines and they're fine, aren't they? 
I started to cry thinking about all the children that weren't so fine. Um, for the lawyers, we're going to mention some off-label uses of vaccines, some which are inappropriate to do off-label, um, some off-label ways which are sometimes appropriate. Hopefully by the end of the next hour, 55 minutes, we'll be able to understand a little bit of science about how vaccines work. We'll be able to identify the benefits and risks of vaccines, and we'll have some examples of how we can deal with people that are hesitant to get vaccines. So what you can expect is a little bit of science, some statistics, and some stories. This will not be an encyclopedic review about everything related to immunization. We'll have some information, and hopefully we'll have some interaction. Does that sound like a deal for the next 50-ish minutes, whatever we're doing? All right. There are two mechanisms by which we can be vaccinated. There are two ways that vaccines can work to allow us to be protected from subsequent exposure to a germ. Passive and active. A pass Somebody want to answer that? We have a bunch of... Raise your hands again if you're a student. Now nobody wants to admit it when I'm about to quiz people. All right. Okay, you. You hesitantly came on. No, I won't do that to you. All right. So passive vaccines is we just give protection. Um, so we give specific protection. The body of the patient just receives that protection. They don't need to mount an immune response or do anything. We give them antibodies, things that fight against germs. So we just give them vaccine, passive vaccine, and that's going to fight against the germs that might cause trouble. That's a passive vaccine where we're just giving antibodies. Morning, morning. Uh, active vaccination means that we're going to give something that will stimulate the individual's body to make antibodies to protect them against subsequent exposure. Got the idea? Passive, we just give them protection. Active, we give them something to stimulate the person to make their own protection. Examples of that with passive vaccination is just giving antibodies. In the old days, sometimes we used to give immunoglobulin, just a general immunoglobulin to protect against measles. Even now, we have specific antibodies, specific immunoglobulin against rabies and against hepatitis B. These are things we would give to people that we think might have been exposed or have been exposed. We just give them antibodies. The antibodies disperse through their bodies, find the germs, viruses in these examples, bind and inactivate those viruses to protect the person from getting sick. Passive immunization, we have a battle in the body with our antibodies against the antigens, the germs. They fight together. The body is just the place it's happening, but they don't have to mount an immune response. The more common kind of vaccination is active. We give an antigen of some sort, a piece of a virus or a piece of a bacteria, and we stimulate the person to build their own antibodies to protect themselves. Some of these are live vaccines, and some are pieces or killed vaccines. Live vaccines are not just the raw virus or bacteria that's about to make them sick, but it's a living organism that's been changed, so it shouldn't make them too sick, but it will still stimulate a response to protect them from the sickness. Non-live is just a piece of something, and that'll protect them. Examples are on the screens. Measles and yellow fever, we give a live virus that shouldn't make them too sick, um, and then that stimulates them to make antibody to fight off the real virus if and when they're exposed. Non-live examples would be influenza and hepatitis A, amongst others, where we give something to make them stimulate a reaction against the infection so that when they're exposed, they will have made antibodies against it. 
but the thing we gave, the vaccine, influenza or hepatitis A, for instance, is not alive and cannot actually cause disease. Is that making sense to everybody? Our greeter at the door understands this perfectly well as we were talking on the way in, uh, because some people think, I won't get an influenza, a flu shot, because then I might get flu. You can't get flu from the flu shot. You might get it from waiting around the waiting room if somebody else already has flu there. But you can't get influenza from the flu shot because it's not a living organism that can cause disease. It's a piece of an organism that can then stimulate you to develop antibodies that will protect against those pieces, but will also protect against the whole organism if you're exposed. Make sense? All right. That's basics. Most of you already know that. So an overview of a perspective I'll give, and partly this is to prepare us to counter and discuss things with vaccine-hesitant families. Every year, vaccines save millions of life and prevent multiple millions of sick days in people around the world. I happen to be old enough. Somebody in this room turned 61 two days ago. We should sing him happy birthday, but we won't. Someone else in this room turned eight two days. We're not going to sing him happy birthday either. Uh, but I'm even older than 61 or 8. And I've lived long enough to have lived in the era where I've seen people dying of things that we now have, of diseases for which we now have good vaccines. There are good data showing that without vaccines, millions of more people would be dying around the world. There's no scientific doubt that vaccines save lives, vaccines prevent illnesses. However, Nothing in medicine is perfect. None of us, are, but Jesus is perfect and he's involved in medicine. But none of us individually are perfect and no medical intervention is perfect. Similarly, no vaccine is perfect. There can be side effects to walking across the street. Uh, there can be side effects to playing with a wired kite in a electrical storm like Ben Franklin's. There are risks that we do. We try not to take too much risk, but for the value of what we get, there might be value in doing it. So no vaccine is perfect. Any medical intervention costs something, whether it's to pay for the vaccine or the cost of time that it takes to go or the cost of pain to get a shot in the arm or the leg. Um, there's a cost of time and resources um, and comfort, perhaps, to getting medical interventions. And medical interventions do carry risk. So nobody's going to say, I hope, that vaccines are perfect. Non-vaccine is perfectly terrible. Uh, but we have to understand there are risks and there are benefits to what goes on. Statistically, we can look at what is the value of different vaccines. Protection rates vary. No vaccine protects everybody that gets the, the vaccine, but many come pretty close. Influenza vaccine protects lots of illness, protects against death, especially in young children and in older individuals, but it's not perfect. It varies year by year, but 50 to 70% of people that get their annual influenza vaccine will be protected against that year's influenza. That's pretty good. We can protect half to two-thirds. But it's not perfect. Some people will still get influenza despite having been vaccinated. Vaccines for typhoid fever are about two-thirds, 70% protective. That's pretty good. And having had typhoid, I would have wished I would have had a good vaccine to protect at least two-thirds of the chance of getting that illness. Measles vaccine with repeated doses 
is good against about 99% of exposures to measles. And hepatitis A vaccine is an example that comes pretty close to 100% protective. So different vaccines vary in their protectiveness, in their efficacy or effectiveness, with some only about halfway good enough, hepatitis A almost perfect. We read and hear and see these days about use of malaria vaccine, useful in some of the parts of the world in which some of us are or will be working. Malaria vaccines have been developed but not implemented because they're 30 to 50% protective for a few years. And then after those few years, the risk goes back up and they don't give long-term protection. Hepatitis A vaccine with two doses should protect for your life. Yellow fever vaccine with one dose should protect for your life and very close to everybody that gets it. Malaria vaccines protect less than half of people for a long time, but not forever in their life. So different vaccines have different value. Work continues before we start widely using malaria vaccines till we have something that's going to work in more people and can last for longer. Side effects of vaccines also vary. Injectable vaccines cause pain. It hurts. Some sting more than others do. There can be discomfort when we get a vaccine. Even for on, they're not just with pain. Tetanus vaccines can make people sore, even if it's not necessarily real pain, but you can have some discomfort. Um, and yellow fever vaccine can kill people. So part of the difficulty we deal with is vaccines are very effective in protecting against terrible disease, but some vaccines can actually do bad things. So yellow fever vaccine is an example where it's a live virus vaccine. If you get bitten by an Aedes mosquito and get yellow fever, so you're in a part of the world where there is yellow fever, if you get yellow fever, even with good medical care, there's about a 50-50 chance that you will not survive. Getting yellow fever is really bad. If you get yellow fever vaccine, it's pretty easy. It stings a little bit. You might feel achy for a day or two, and it almost always protects you against yellow fever for the rest of your life, unless you're one of the one out of 70,000 people that gets yellow fever from the vaccine and then dies. So we admit that there are problems with vaccines. They're not perfect. Would we rather vaccinate and save a million lives and then risk the one out of 70,000? Well, I'd rather not risk anybody, but sometimes we find ourselves balancing risk. So vaccines vary in terms of protection. Side effects and risk vary for vaccines. And there are good data available to know just how dangerous each vaccine is and to know how protective it is. The needs for vaccines also vary geographically and vary over time. In the history of the United States of America, we know that the Continental Congress in Philadelphia, and I think it was 1770-something or other, I think it was before 1776, they almost canceled the meeting and had to relocate it because there was a yellow fever vaccine or a yellow fever epidemic raging in Philadelphia, and travel was limited. Even in this country, major cities, a couple hundred years ago, there were yellow fever epidemics. I happen to work at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. People sometimes say, why would you ever live there? We can ask, why is the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota? It's because the original Dr. Mayo used to live in Indiana. And he didn't like getting malaria every summer, so he moved where there was less malaria in the mid-1800s. 
Not that that long ago in history, 100 to 200 years ago, malaria was raging in much of this country. Yellow fever came in epidemics around the country. Um, so there are time variations and there are geographical variations. If you're not going to leave this country, you don't need to get a yellow fever vaccine. You can't get yellow fever in this country currently because the mosquitoes aren't carrying it. So we need to understand if we're going to talk about vaccinating patients that the risk of the disease varies by location and varies over time from year to year and from century to century. There's a great book I just started reading called The Mosquito. Who would read a book called The Mosquito? It's turning into a bestseller, and it says and makes a strong story saying that mosquitoes, through their transmission of diseases, have been the major determinant of the course of human history. Just because of epidemics and what goes on and where people can live and how they can live. So vaccination needs will vary by location, by person. Um, and then we also have to wonder about the outcome of an illness without vaccine. There might be vaccines that would be helpful, but if the illness isn't that big a deal, is it worth taking any risk if there's not so much risk from getting the disease? Rabies at the bottom of the screens. If you get sick with rabies, you will pretty much die. There have been two people that have survived rabies with some very complicated care, one in Wisconsin, one in South Africa. Other than that, to my knowledge, no one has gotten sick with rabies and survived. Lots of people have been bitten by rabid animals and then vaccinated and then survive. But without vaccine, if you get symptomatic with rabies, you will die, 100% pretty much, or 99.99. Yellow fever, we already mentioned, is about 50% fatal if you get it. But what about the chickenpox vaccine? Chickenpox vaccine is very effective in preventing chickenpox. That's good. But if you don't get the vaccine, getting severe life-threatening illness from chickenpox is not very common. We don't want to have chickenpox. We might feel bad for a few days. Older people might have risks. Newborns might have risks. But most of the time, people get over their chickenpox. Not everybody. There are rare cases. There are reasons that we should say, let's prevent that severe illness. Um, but chickenpox isn't as dangerous. So I'm trying to paint you a picture of what many of you already know. Vaccines are very good, and they save a lot of lives. No vaccine is perfect. And if we know the data, we'll be able to put together how effective is the vaccine, how much risk is there geographically and at this particular time, and what happens with or without the vaccine, so we can make those kinds of different decisions. Even in my own life, I look back to the 1980s when I was a resident. It's really fun. There's a guy that was a medical student when I was a resident here today in the room. Um, fun to reminisce and remember. Those were the days when medical students and pediatric residents got really good at taking care of kids with meningitis. Meningitis was really common. Sad that we got that good of expertise dealing with it, but meningitis was so incredibly common, caused by haemophilus influenza and pneumococcus and meningococcus. Meningitis was common. Medical students and residents now rarely see patients with meningitis. Meningitis is scary and rare, and they hardly ever see it. Why? Because of immunization. Early 1980s, the haemophilus vaccine became available Decade and a half later, pneumococcus, meningococcus has become available. Because of vaccination, diseases are being nearly eradicated even in this, in this country. I mentioned that I had the 
I almost said privilege. I had the experience of having typhoid and hepatitis A. People used to consider hepatitis A illness was part of the orientation to being a long-term missionary. You just expect you're going to be sick and turn yellow, and that's what happens. That's pretty sad. Um, But, in fact, hepatitis A was so common in much of the world. Now, with a vaccine, there's no reason that anybody needs to get hepatitis A. There's good vaccination that's available. Ebola is another example. I was thinking walking in today. A few years ago at this conference was when Ebola was raging in West Africa. And Lance Plyler, one of the speakers, and then there were several others as well at that conference here at GMHC, um, they were speaking about Ebola. But there had been a lot of comments in the weeks leading up to this conference telling the organizers, you should cancel the conference. I'm not going to go. There might be somebody from Africa there that's going to give me Ebola. Um, So there was this big worry about that. Ebola is a scary, dangerous condition. Uh, Now we look and say there's still Ebola in the place where I used to live in Africa, but there is a vaccine that's available, and it has greatly limited the current Ebola outbreak, even compared to the West African Ebola outbreak a few years ago. Great progress with new vaccines. There's good result from having vaccines available. What about the future? In some of your lifetimes, birthday boy that turned eight this week, uh, we should be able to see HIV vaccines and malaria vaccines coming. Even for those that turned 61 this week, there might be in our lifetime HIV and malaria vaccines. Science is advancing. Good, Good care is becoming possible. Speaking about Ebola, um, I do some work in a travel clinic where I live now, uh, and I was seeing a patient that was going to be traveling who wanted vaccination. And I started by saying, so what brings you to the, vac- to the travel clinic? This was a few years ago, and he says, well, I don't want to get Ebola. And I said, okay, we can talk about that. I said, where are you going? He said, Peru. I said, oh, and where's Ebola? And he said, well, it's, it's kind of right there on the map. Well, South America and Africa, there wasn't much risk. We need to make sure we put some sense more than fear when we're talking about diseases and vaccination. Where do we get information about vaccines? There are good consensus statements based on solid science and expert opinion from various groups. You can Google and go online to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website, CDC. They give good detailed information with footnotes that are longer than the table about the vaccines, good detailed information about vaccine schedules for different sorts of children and adults in the United States. You can go to the World Health or and the AAP is American Academy of Pediatrics. AAP does, uses the same vaccine schedule as the CDC. World Health Organization has vaccine schedules that are a little different, and other countries have vaccine schedules that are a little different. Why would vaccine schedules be different in Congo than they are in the United States? Because the diseases are different. We have an epidemiologist here with us this morning. If we know where the disease is, that will affect what vaccines we need. If there's more of a certain disease in a place, you're more likely to get the vaccine. You don't need yellow fever vaccine if you're going to spend your life in Philadelphia. It would have helped 200 years ago, but you no longer need it. So there are different guidelines based on good expert scientific data and consensus statements in different areas. Um, So you need to avail yourselves of that information. If there are questions in a little bit, we can talk about some of the details of why the schedules are like they are. But the schedules are adapted for local and regional needs, and the schedules try to balance the cost 
and the risk and the benefits. For instance, when varicella, chickenpox vaccine, became available, the CDC, a group of the United States government, knew that the vaccine would help save a lot of illness days and would save a few lives if everybody got the vaccine. But for the CDC to say everybody should get the vaccine implied that the United States government was now going to start paying for it and the funds hadn't been allocated. So we have to interpret what's going on and put feasibility into that. It's easy to go to Africa and say, hey, everybody should get Ebola vaccine. Well, it doesn't quite make sense if it costs money and there's no Ebola where you are this year if the vaccine's only going to protect you for a year or two. So you have to mix in the benefit and the efficacy with your individual needs and with the cost and the risk. Is this all making sense? Joel hasn't fallen asleep yet. Everybody's still with us. Any comments or anything? All right, vaccination. Vaccination is not the whole story of prevention. There are many ways to prevent diseases. Vaccination is our topic today, and it's a key component, a key tool in our arsenal in the battle against vaccine-preventable diseases. But vaccines are not the whole story. If we look at the incidence of polio in the United States, you can imagine there's a graph here. Um, here is how much polio there is going up on my graph. Here is time going across from 1955 when I was born till the present. There was a bunch of polio, and it was dwindling a little, and we got vaccines, injectable and oral. Incidence of polio went way down, and since the 70s there wasn't much polio, and now polio doesn't exist except a couple countries in the world. So if we look at when vaccines started against polio, sudden drop-off with near eradication of polio. A fantastic story. Isn't that great? Now let's move back the timeline to 1920, and we see the incidence of polio was way high, and it was already coming down before the vaccines became available. Vaccines were hugely important and have helped a lot of people, but something was going on since the 1920s in the United States, and the incidence of polio was already going down. What was going on? Flush toilets. Improvements in sanitation in this country were already dropping the incidence of polio. I tell that story just to say we need to remember that vaccines are not the whole story. We still need good food and water hygiene. We still need hand sanitation. We still should have some way to deal with toileting. And for diseases that are born by mosquitoes, we still need to try to avoid mosquito bites. We can deal with the stagnant water where mosquitoes will breed outside windows. We can deal with clothes or DEET to protect skin, repel mosquitoes. There are various means we can take to prevent vaccine-preventable diseases. And vaccines are one piece, but we shouldn't forget hygiene and we shouldn't forget mosquito avoidance. So vaccine is one weapon in the multifaceted arsenal to combat deadly disease. Age also matters. I don't just say that because I'm becoming an old person. Um, age also matters as we consider vaccines. So as a pediatrician, we can think about how do babies get protected against disease? God created mothers to be very special in very many ways. One way is that the mother during her lifetime has gained some antibodies, protective chemicals to fight off invading germs. The mother has gained some chemicals, antibodies, to protect herself. And this loving mother, without even thinking about it, shares her antibodies with the baby before the baby's born. 
So the IgG kind of antibodies go across the placenta, so the baby is born with a whole bunch of antibodies to protect that baby against some diseases that the mother had. And then the mother's antibodies gradually wear off as the child gets exposed in the child's own right, gets exposed to germs, and the child develops his own immunity or her own immunity. In fact, the mother is providing what we called passive immunization. The child doesn't have to work. Placenta just feeds this stuff through the umbilical cord to the baby during the pregnancy. So the baby is born with this passively acquired antibody collection to fight off different germs. Is that making sense to everybody? So the child is born typically with protection against measles and against hepatitis A for that matter. If the mother has had measles or hepatitis A, or if the mother has been vaccinated against measles and hepatitis A, the mother has a bunch of IgG antibodies specific for measles and hepatitis A that she has shared with the child. So it would be very rare for a child to get sick with hepatitis A or measles during the first six months of life if the mother had shared those protective antibodies. It's somewhat rare up to a year of age, but after a year of age, the child is, in a sense, on the child's own and needs to make their own antibodies. So the child is protected passively, gift of the mother, against hepatitis A and measles for the first 6 to 12 months of life. That means also that if I give the child a measles vaccine at 3 months of age, it probably won't do much. Partly the child doesn't need it. And the mother's antibody is going to fight off the vaccine. The child's still not going to mount any immune response. So age matters to the child because the maternal antibodies that protect the baby can also block the effectiveness of the vaccine. So the timing of when we give vaccines depends on the sort of maternal antibodies that are still active. So for many infections... The child can mount the child's own immune response, diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, haemophilus. The child can start already mounting in a response from the early months of life. Others, like measles and hepatitis A, the child, if the mother was affected and protected, the child's not going to be able to respond to the vaccine until 6 to 12 months of age. So we normally wouldn't give those vaccines till later. So, practically speaking, we'll say that a child of nine months of age is about to go to a place where there's a lot of measles. That could be New York or Minneapolis or the middle of Africa. But if a child's going to be going to a place where there's more measles, we'd want to make sure the child's protected. Is the nine-month-old protected still from the mother? Good answer. I love your facial expression. That was beautiful. She said, we don't know. Is this a child that still has mom's antibodies or they've already worn off? Normally, if there's a low risk of measles in the environment, we wait till 12 months of age. Then we know mom's antibodies will be gone. The child can develop protection. Before 12 months of age, well, if we say before 6 months of age, the child should be protected. Between 6 and 12 months of age, we don't know. So I would say let's just give the child a shot, give the measles vaccine, then either the child was protected from the mother or the child's going to develop the child's own protection, and then the child will be fine during that trip. But since I don't know for sure that the child is going to respond to that one, we'll still give the usual one after a year of age anyway. Age matters when we're deciding about vaccines, and sometimes based on exposures that are anticipated, 
we might give an early vaccine because it's going to be before what other people would get if they were not likely to be exposed. Everybody following? So age matters. The risk also matters with age. We already mentioned this briefly about yellow fever. The yellow fever vaccine has been noted to be more likely to lead to death when children get it before four months of age and when adults get it as they're older, especially after 70 years of age. So it would be nicest to give the yellow fever vaccine during the window when the risks are less. More than 70 years of age, it's about a 1 in 20,000 risk of death from the yellow fever vaccine. That's still not very much, but it's more than the risk of 1 in 70,000 in 30 and 40 and 50-year-olds. So what do we do with yellow fever vaccine? We say, well, we don't want to take that risk in the young babies so less than four months is risky. Let's not give it ever before six months of age and maybe not even before nine months because we don't want to be the cause of the child having trouble. Others from Brazil would say, our kids all got it and hardly any of them had trouble. Maybe we should give it. But you need to be careful with the yellow fever vaccine in the first six to nine months of life. And if anybody's approaching older age, 60, 70, 80, you might say, well, I think I might go somewhere in a few years. Maybe you should get the vaccine sooner instead of later so you're protected with less risk by getting it when you're younger. But viruses are clever. Influenza vaccine or influenza virus is one of the cleverest viruses that there is. It keeps changing its clothes year after year. The clothes are the things that the vaccine is going to recognize and that the antibodies would recognize. And the influenza virus keeps changing what it looks like. So being protected against last year's influenza virus is not necessarily going to protect you against this year's influenza virus. And being protected against North American influenza might not protect you against next year's South American influenza, which is why the influenza vaccine needs to keep changing what it does to keep up with the changes in viruses. Yellow fever just kind of stays the same. Others kind of stay the same. Influenza changes. So we need to keep adjusting our vaccines that are being developed to help with all that. There are many great lines in the Bible. You already knew that. One of them is, come, let us reason together. So I'm going to mention a couple of things where I think we need to reason thoughtfully about vaccines. And I will be blunt as I've written on the slide. Delayed vaccination means delayed protection. Partial vaccination means partial protection. As a pediatrician, I deal with families who think, oh, no, that's too much for my child. Let's go gently. Let's go slowly. And instead of giving all those vaccines in six months, let's spread them out over two or three years to be gentler. That is gentler. That is spread out. And that delays the protection and leaves the child at risk of diseases that we could otherwise protect against. Partial vaccination means to pick and choose and say, well, other kids are going to get vaccinated against 15 different things. I don't think those matter that much, so I'll just pick and choose what I want. And that leaves your child partially protected, but not fully protected against other things. So delayed vaccination leads to delayed protection. Partial vaccination leads to partial protection. And a common challenge for pediatricians these days and for family medicine docs and for nurses and for parents and for grandparents is to decide how do we deal with those that buy into the kinder, gentler, less effective, less protective vaccine schedules.
I'm looking to see how many of you look offended by what I just said. You're still hanging in there with me. Um, some, to push it farther, some would make a seatbelt analogy. It's against the law to have your young child in a car in this country without a seatbelt. To do so is a criminal offense, and it could be considered a form of child abuse and neglect not to provide that normal protection for your child riding in a car. Most of us had seatbelts on when we drove over here today, even though it was very unlikely that we would have had an accident, even though it was very unlikely if we did that the accident would have put our head through a window. But we wear seatbelts as a little bit of a hassle, and it cost a bit to put it in the car, but as an effective way to prevent rare, terrible things from happening. And our laws require in this country, I'm not saying all laws are perfect in this country or anywhere else, but our laws require parents to appropriately restrain their children. Similarly, we could say, well, if you've got a way to protect a child from a terrible but rare thing, and it's not that big a hassle or dangerous to get it, is it criminal, illegal, child abuse and neglect not to vaccinate the child? It's interesting to watch how popular opinion has changed. I can pick on Californians since I used to be one. Uh, California for a while was into, let me just live free and easy. I'm oversimplifying. Californians were into, let me feel free and easy and do whatever I want, and I don't need to bother with authority and vaccines because I want to do it my way. And then some of those kids went to Disneyland and got measles, and the parents said, wait a minute. You can't do it your way. You've got to do it the way that's going to keep my kids safer. And now California has some of the most restrictive vaccine laws requiring vaccination because people realize that the public health cost to the government is so much greater when they had more outbreaks of measles and other things. An interesting study out of the University of Michigan just in the last couple of months says that 40% of patients, this one shocked me, 40% of patients would rather not see a doctor if that doctor treats unvaccinated patients. Not only are people shying away from saying, no, I don't want to do vaccines the medical way. They're saying, I don't want to tolerate people that don't get vaccinated. I don't want them in the waiting room with my child. And I don't want to even see a doctor that's so mushy soft to not make all of their patients get vaccines. That surprised me that 40% would go that way. And I will admit that this is a challenge. Some patients that I have great relationships with and care for over time opt not to get vaccines. I think it's possible to work with them. These data would say 40% of people are going to turn me down if they find out that I will take care of a patient that's not been vaccinated. Uh, so the public opinion is shifting, but we need to make sure we're basing what we do based on science. Is vaccine immoral? Some of you might think that that was a strange question. How many of you have heard about abortion and vaccines, and that's made you afraid to get oh, a bunch of people? Very nice. So in the 1960s, some clever doctors were developing vaccines, and they realized that the vaccines could be best developed if they grew them in human cells. So in the lab, cells that came from a human being, and adult cells are kind of old and don't last very long to keep reproducing. So baby cells worked better. And pre-born baby cells worked the best. So these doctors developed some vaccines from pre-born baby cells. It happened that they got their pre-born baby cells from the tissues of babies that had been aborted. So there are two strains of cells, two cell lines, 
that were developed in the 1960s from fetuses, preborn babies that had been aborted. I doubt there are many in the room. Exactly two of them. Two. Mm-hmm. Yes. Paul's exactly right. There were two babies that had been aborted for other reasons. One, because the parents said, we have too many kids, we don't want this one. And the other, because the mother apparently had some psychiatric issues and somebody thought she couldn't handle the child. So these two babies had been aborted for other reasons, done, end of their story, sadly. But then somebody recovered some tissue and found that that tissue was useful to develop vaccines. So those vaccines were there. Most vaccines were not from those two cell lines. But German measles rubella vaccine is one that came from the cell line of the aborted baby from a couple that thought they already had too many children. The abortions were not done to produce vaccines. There was no thought of, let's produce vaccines from the cells. How can we do it? Let's go abort somebody to do it. The abortions were done for totally other reasons, separate from the fact that later on somebody capitalized on some of that existing tissue um, and was able to make some good out of the evil of abortion. So, should you accept a vaccine that came from what you might consider to be a sinful act? Some have said, well, no, I don't want anything to do with abortion. So I'm not going to accept a vaccine that had anything to do with abortion. That's a little bit of a stretch because the vaccine came totally separate. It was just leftover tissue in a lab that it came from. Um, And the vaccines can save a lot of lives. So that's been a challenge for some. The Catholic Church, fairly restrictive on this, through a papal decree, um, declared that that's not a problem. Um, The vaccines were developed from tissue lines that were obtained totally separate from any decision about whether or not to abort the baby. It was just the tissue that was used. The Catholic Church has said that should not be a reason not to get vaccinated. Christian Medical and Dental Association had a statement written by Gene Rudd that some of you know that came to the same conclusion. But this is an issue that has been a challenge for some patients and parents. In my experience, most people don't know about this abortion thing, so maybe I've poisoned you by telling you about it. And those that do say, that's not an issue. That's not why they were doing the abortion. This is good out of evil. It's not that the abortion was done for this purpose, so it's not implicit or complicit with doing it. The analogy I would make with that is somebody that's dying of kidney failure and needs a kidney transplant. They don't want anybody to die to give them their kidney, but many people are saved from deceased donor kidneys that are harvested and then given to them to save their lives. I have never heard of a kidney recipient asking the question, how did the donor die? Was there a drunk driver that killed the donor? Because I don't believe in drunk driving. So if a drunk driver killed that person, I don't want to take their kidney to make any good come out of the drunk driver's bad thing. I've never heard of anybody turning down a kidney donation because it came from a sinful bad act of drunk driving. And in the same way, I don't have any problem with vaccinating people even if the vaccine is good that resulted. Does that make sense to people? Paul obviously has clear ideas similar to mine about this issue. Um, Anybody with other thoughts on that one? (laughs) 
Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so, uh, that, I mentioned that Ebola thing. Uh, the initial treatment for Ebola a few years ago was a passive vaccine that was some antibodies against Ebola called ZMAP. That came from tobacco leaves. So they grew in tobacco cell culture to make some passive Ebola vaccine, which saved some lives, saved lives of people that are around this conference. It was a good thing. One of the people that received the vaccine and saved his life, it seems, because of it, said, how about that? Good came from tobacco, uh, whatever. God can redeem lots of things, whether it's the products of an abortion or a drunk driver or whatever we think about tobacco. All right, thimerosal. This one has kind of faded from public concern, but for a while uh, people didn't like vaccines that had thimerosal in them. Thimerosal is a chemical. It's related to mercury. Thimerosal is not mercury, but it's related to the mercury chemical. Mercury can be toxic. Thimerosal has never been shown to be toxic or to hurt a human being. And then some people said, well, I don't want any thimerosal in my vaccines. I'm going to turn those down. Why? Because thimerosal is similar to mercury, and mercury might be toxic. So then I don't want any. There's a logical problem in that because thimerosal is not dangerous. Even it's like saying, oh, you remind me of somebody that was a murderer. I'm not going to like you because you look like a murderer. Uh, anyway, I think there's a logical issue there. I don't have any concerns about thimerosal in vaccines. Anybody want to voice concerns? So the abortion issue was a moral grounds. Thimerosal was a chemical toxicity grounds for refusing vaccines. I don't think either of them holds up very well. So I would say, like we read in the Bible, come, let us reason together. But I would ask the question, do no harm? We keep saying that one of the main tenets of medical care is first, do no harm. Today will be the seventh time in three weeks I have gone through the Atlanta airport. And when I fly on Delta Airlines, there's a nice little speech. And the flight attendants say, your safety is our primary concern. And I disagree every time I hear that. If safety was the primary concern, they would tell me, don't get in the airplane because one out of 10 million people might die. Stay at home if safety's no. My concern is transportation. And I want the flight attendants to get me where I'm going, not with undue risk. But if safety is the main concern, we'll probably stay in our houses and not go across the street and not ride in a car and not ride in an airplane and not do anything. And then a tornado will wipe out our house anyway, I suppose. Uh, so I don't know if I really buy the idea of do no harm because we've already said that any medical intervention carries risk. Antibiotics carry risk. You might die of pneumonia without an antibiotic, and there's a 1 out of 10,000 chance you might have a bad reaction to the antibiotic. Death versus one out of 10,000 of a treatable. There's, there's not really a no harm possible. So I think it's okay to accept some risk of harm if there's a certainty or near certainty of a great benefit. Not to do so would be like the proverbial throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Well, if one out of 70,000 people die from yellow fever vaccine, I'm just going to risk my whole family to die from yellow fever and forget the one out of 70,000. So I think there's a logical thing we have to think about. Our goal is to help people with as least a risk as possible. Um, so that's what we're about. That's what we're doing. Finally, some people would say, well, vaccines are fine, but not for my family. 
There's an arrogance in this, I think, for some, uh, because they would say, if everybody else gets vaccinated against measles, then there won't be any measles around, so my kids are safe. So you all do that, and I won't do it. The two problems with that, number one is, if anybody else does that, there's somebody else at risk of it. And if you have 5 or 10% of people not vaccinated for measles and they go to Disneyland or an airport or a school, they might get measles and share it with the others that weren't vaccinated. So I'm not sure it's possible that everybody else will be vaccinated. Um, and I'm not sure it would be right anyway. HPV, human papillomas virus vaccine, is what some would call the cancer vaccine. That vaccine is very, very effective in preventing female cervical cancer and saves a lot of lives. I've had patients, sometimes dabbling outside of pediatrics, I've had patients dying of HPV-related cancer due to lack of vaccine. This vaccine can save a lot of lives. But you're not going to get the infection that leads to the cancer unless you have sexual intimacy with somebody that has the virus. So I've had some parents say, well... My child will not take any risk. I talk to children alone, teenagers, and I find out some of them don't share the same principles as their parents do, and there might be a risk. And some of them might be perfectly moral, but then later on marry somebody who went through a time of promiscuity and getting infections. So I think that we can't really say that we can predict the total future for our children. So there's a balancing act there. If there's no risk, fine, but can we really guarantee no risk versus a safe vaccine that's going to save a lot of lives? Hillary cares about this because she's been working in Africa saving lives by studying HPV vaccines and other things like that. The other piece of this for us that are doing healthcare work in other countries, I would say, is the example that we set. Three of our children, Julie's in the back corner, three of our children um, were born in Africa when I was working there as a pediatrician. And when they were born, the routine was put medicine in the eye so the child doesn't get conjunctivitis. I knew my children would not get conjunctivitis because I knew neither Julie nor I had ever been exposed to gonorrhea or chlamydia. I knew there was an absolute zero risk of our children having gonorrhea or chlamydia in their eyes from sliding through Julie's birth canal. There was no risk. But I also knew that there's a minimal risk to putting the drops in. And in fact, if my kids didn't get the drops, then the other people working in that setting were going to say, well, he didn't, so I'm sure I don't. And everybody else would be thinking, well, I know my kids might be at risk, but I don't want them to know that my kids might be at risk, so I'm going to pretend they're... Uh, So I think we also have that example to play. And sometimes we might choose to get eye drops or a vaccine, even if we have minimal risk for ourselves or our children, because to not do so is going to teach a whole group of people um, something that might put a lot more children at risk. So what do we say from all this? I would say vaccines save lives. Vaccines aren't perfect but can be used wisely. We should come and reason together, um, use our minds. We talk about evidence-based medicine, and then sometimes we practice friend-based book-based, internet-based, sister-based, or some other kind of medicine. We need to reason together and use the real scientific base to help us guide decisions. We should stay current about recommendations for timing and geography and risk factors related to epidemiology, medications that the patient might be on. Some people, vaccines would be more dangerous because of medicines they're on. We need to take that into account. And I think as I've tried to do this morning, we can help vaccine-hesitant families with a little science, 
some statistics and some stories and personal experience to bond with them. So that's what I have to say. Thanks for your attention, but I'm guessing there might be some other ideas and things. Paul. So I'm going to repeat, summarize the question for the microphone for the people that aren't here. But Paul's asking the question, what about those faith-based people that say, God will take care of me, so I'm not going to do that. Paul's response was partly, well, you turn on the lights. You're using some technology to help you live a little bit better. I often just ask people if they had seatbelts on when they came to see me before we're having that discussion. Um, and if they say no, then I'm even more concerned. Uh, if they say yes, it's, well, what's the limit? You're going to use seatbelts. Do you walk across the street in heavy traffic when there's no crosswalk and no signal? God will take care of you. But if you want to look at the Bible, Jesus also said, no, Satan, I'm not going to jump off this tower to make God rescue me. I'm going to do what God wants in the first place. Um, and he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And one of those words was, come, let us reason together. Anyway, so I would do that. But I'll, I'll put a little, this is not an anti-Christian comment, but I think maybe because we as Christians know how to believe and put our faith in God and believe in the unseen world, I think it makes some of us Christians more gullible sometimes to a powerful preacher, leader, dogmatic, so-and-so says, which is part of why I think we need to get back to the evidence base of what we're talking about. It's too easy to be gullible for things that don't really make sense, and sometimes it feels like Christians are more gullible than others, but yeah. Now you're getting personal. He asked if I would care to comment about the shingles vaccine. I say he's getting personal because I got a note from my doctor saying I'm due for it and I haven't gotten in yet. That is a bad example. I just admitted the setting for you. Um, so there are a couple of shingles vaccines. Shingles is something that happens when the chickenpox nerve lives, the chickenpox virus lives for a long time in the nerves, and then as people get older or immunocompromised, and sometimes even for children, the virus reactivates and it causes painful sores on the skin, and it's miserable. We now have a couple of good shingles vaccines. They're very effective. They decrease the risk of having days of terrible pain. I think the shingles vaccine is a good thing. One of the two main shingles vaccines happened to be developed from one of those two kids that had been aborted and from their cells. That's not an issue for me. So I think the shingles vaccine makes good sense. As I balance risks and benefits, I just admitted that I'm almost a few months behind schedule in getting mine. But do you have other questions or comments? It's two vaccines now, and the percentage of benefit is like maybe was 50% with the old one, and now is like about 90%. Besides that, shingles in older folks can give you an awful lot of difficulty, particularly with long-term pain and particularly if it gets involved in the face or the eye. So a shingles vaccine, I think, is really something to be advocated. 
So those outside of the room don't know what he just said was advocating for the shingles vaccine. Simple two shots can protect a lot of problems with pain, but also eye problems if you get shingles in your eyes, especially a problem for older people. Vaccine is effective. It works. It's good. So, yeah, I'd advocate for it. Most of my pediatric patients don't need it yet, but, yes, I would. Was there another hand or a question? We've got four minutes. Yes. Do I have examples of good reading material for vaccine-reluctant families? No. Um, Well, yes and no. Uh, People, I'm not sure that reading material helps that much. So people ask me for reading material. I point them to the American Academy of Pediatrics. There are resources for pediatricians and for vaccine-hesitant families. Um, So, yes, there is good reading material. www.aap.org has some of that material. It's very good. I have not yet seen reading material change the mind of a vaccine-hesitant person, which is why I go more for the conversation, information, science, statistics, stories, whatever. So, yes, the American Academy of Pediatrics has good vaccine-hesitant information, but most of the people that are vaccine-hesitant are not going to suddenly believe it because it's written by a bunch of pediatricians. Um, So is it good? Yes. Is it effective? They can try. It's not a bad idea. And some people that are really just hesitant instead of fighting against, they want more information. And sometimes that information might help, even though I haven't seen it very often. Do you have other information you're thinking of? I don't. I'm thinking that something CMBA could perhaps help with some of the faith-based concerns. Yeah. 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 That's a good idea. Why don't you go down to the CMDA booth and suggest that? A new policy about vaccine. That's a good idea. They've done some ethical things that semi-relate, like the aborted thing. But, yeah, that's a good thought. Final question? Yes. What about vaccines and linking them with autism? You asked for thoughts. I'm having feelings as well. Uh, My thought is that there have been a lot of studies. There is absolutely no evidence linking any risk of autism coming from the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. That's been debunked and proven and scientifically, thoughtfully, there is absolutely no risk. I told one family that, and he said, really? They keep having to do studies? Well, if they keep doing more studies to prove that, it must be because they're not convinced. Uh, Some people don't want to be convinced. The feelings, it's tragic. A particular physician in England who's lost his license now comes to the state where I live, Minnesota, every couple of years, picks on a particular group, Somali population, spreads disproven science to convince people not to give it, and within a year of him being there, we see an increase in incidence of measles in Minnesota. So I have feelings. The thought is there is excellent science saying that measles vaccine is unrelated to autism. Why do people think it might be? Measles vaccine is usually given at 12 to 15 months of age. When do people show up with autism? Usually 15 to 18 months of age. It's like saying being born causes something else. Same thing came up in the old days with crib death, SIDS. That usually happens at about four to six months of age. And when do you get vaccines? At two to four months of age. So there's a temporal chronologic association, but that's just coincidental because they happen to have two things at the same time. Do you want me to have people fill out things too? Oh, okay, that was my reminder. Thank you very much. Thank you for your attention. You have evaluation forms. Please fill out. That will be helpful. Thank you all.